Hi, everybody. I'm Sabri Beneshore from Marketplace. And I'm Tim Fernholtz from Quartz. And this is Actuality. What you're asking can't be done. This is a futile effort. If it could be done, it shouldn't be done. But it can't be done. It, it can't be done, obviously. Each episode in this season, we're telling the story of something that they said could never be done. And this week, why Americans are saying yes to something we've been told to just say no to, making marijuana a legal business. Right now, 23 states allow some sort of legal marijuana. And there are four states where it's fully legal for recreational use, so you can just go in and buy it. We're going to start today in Washington, D.C., which is kind of in a weird place. You can possess and use marijuana legally. You just can't sell it, which has led to some kinds of creativity. My name's uh, Bo Kenny, and I'm with Wash Hydro. And we're located in Adams Morgan at 2318 18th Street in the heart of the Green Light District. What do you guys sell here? What do you do? What we do here is, is that we sell a full spectrum of hydroponics. Um, we sell air conditioning units, dehumidifiers, anything that you need to grow cannabis or tomatoes with, we have. How did you get involved uh, in this? You know, I, I listen, I was at the first smoke-in on, on the lawn. And, you know, we've been waiting for 45 years now for cannabis to become legal. So where were you before you moved here? Northern Virginia. Uh, we were in the sex toy business. Describe to me how you decided to switch from that and move to D.C. Why did you do that? Initiative 71, in a nutshell. Uh, it's an opportunity. We moved here and opened a business here. When did you open? February. So you, you guys are focusing on selling all the supplies. Yes. Um, some business models uh, in uh, D.C. where it's legal to purchase but not legal to sell have a creative models to operate in that situation. How do they do it? We can give you cannabis, we just can't sell it to you. So a lot of places we can gift up to two ounces at a time, any citizen can. So one citizen to another can give that citizen two ounces of cannabis and it's within the law. So some places you might be able to buy like t-shirts, ball caps, you know, just different different items where you can buy things and they'll give you cannabis. The, there's a lot of cannapreneurs that are out there and they're using these techniques. 10, 20 years from now, what, what's the landscape going to be like legalization-wise? Oh man, we're, we're going to be exporting cannabis all over the world. America is going to be the best growers in the world for cannabis and it's going to be our cash crop. And that's really what I truly believe. The growth of this industry is more than just canopeneurs like Bo in Washington, D.C. There are public health researchers, there are state and federal lawmakers, there are law enforcement officials, there are investors, all increasingly convinced that the spread of marijuana legalization across the U.S. has hit a tipping point and that a legal weed system across most of the United States is inevitable. So this week, we are going to look at the secret history that you probably haven't heard about marijuana prohibition. We're going to look at the current state of play of the states where marijuana is legal now. And we're going to take a look at the businesses and investors that are sort of midwifing the birth of a new industry. Um, but first, can we just... Uh, Let's hop in the official actuality time machine. <laughs> These high school boys and girls are having a hop at the local soda fountain. Innocently, they dance. Innocent of a new and deadly menace lurking behind closed doors. Marijuana, 
the burning weed with its roots in hell. So that is from the infamous 1936 anti-drug movie Reefer Madness. You've definitely heard of it. I had never heard of it. I had heard of the phrase Reefer Madness. I didn't know it was a movie. I guess I'm a greater participant in the drug subculture <laughs> than you, Sabri. I guess so. And marijuana was first criminalized right after this movie came out in 1937. It was legally uh, put on the same level as heroin in 1970. That was with the Controlled Substances Act, which is kind of funny given that humans have been smoking weed for, do you want to know how long, Tim? At least hours. <laughs> Besides people in this room. Uh, 12 thousand years. They think pot was domesticated around 10,000 BC in Mongolia, which is 8,000 years before the first alphabet was invented. If you want to do that kind of abstract thought, you do need some performance enhancement. That's a oh, joke yeah. about creating That's the alphabet while high. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Archaeologists found burned weed seeds in a burial mound in Siberia from 5,000 years ago. In 2000 BC, Weed comes to India. Vikings used weed for uh, to help in childbirth. That would be an f- interesting spin on childbirth. Medieval Germans used it to treat toothaches. And 20th century Americans used it for racism. Sure. <laughs> I'm willing to believe that. <laughs> it's true. and it actually, I've, I've read a few books. It, it kind of explains the mystery of how this country became so maniacally anti-pot. The history of marijuana is a history of repression and also is deeply linked to racial politics. That's Donna Murch. She's a historian at Rutgers University. The origins of uh, the ultimate prohibition of marijuana in the 1930s was this period of Mexican immigration following the Mexican War. And you saw a lot of anxiety about shifting demographics. So you had larger numbers of Mexican-Americans immigrating into the United States, carrying their own customs and culture. And one of these was uh, smoking marijuana. Uh, That's actually where we get the word marijuana from. It's a Spanish word. Uh, So she says all these Mexicans are immigrating at the same time as you have the Depression. 25% of Americans are out of work. And there was a lot of anxiety and labor competition with the Mexican population. Marijuana prohibition was a way of really regulating and controlling these immigrant populations. And uh, apparently at the time, uh, according to author David Behrman, who's written a book on the history of marijuana, uh, when people saw propaganda movies like Reefer Madness or read the insane press coverage of it, most people didn't even realize that marijuana was cannabis. Because Americans are totally familiar with cannabis. They used it in pharmacies in the 1800s, and they were certainly familiar with hemp, which is marijuana's non-psychoactive cousin. Um, So they think that this Mexican marijuana is some invading Latin threat that makes you lazy and insane. Debauchery, violence, murder, suicide. Basically, you had this social propaganda campaign against marijuana at a time of deep social and economic anxiety in the U.S., and it quickly became linked to a threatening group, the Mexican immigrants. And as we're going to see, this is not a coincidence. In fact, the regulation and prohibition of marijuana and other drugs is often used to politically target unsavory groups. Yeah, and the number of groups sort of targeted through this expanded in the 70s. So under Nixon, this is when marijuana gets classified along with heroin and opium. It starts to become regulated in a much more serious way, right? 
at that time, according to John Ehrlichman, he's this Watergate co-conspirator. He talked to a reporter named Dan Baum back in 1994. He says the, the tighter marijuana control was political. John Ehrlichman said that uh, we saw blacks and the anti-war movement as the problem, but we couldn't criminalize being black and we couldn't criminalize uh, being an anti-war protester. So we chose to criminalize um, heroin for African-Americans and um, marijuana for the counterculture. So one could argue that the larger war on drugs really was um, an example of political repression. So Donna says whether it's the prohibition in the 30s or tighter laws in the 70s or enforcement in the 80s, what these marijuana laws allow the government to do is target groups that it finds problematic. Minorities, political groups, the government can go into these communities and arrest people, monitor people, control people, fine people, imprison people. It's a whole other way of thinking about the history of marijuana. And so those prosecutions continued disproportionately putting minorities into jail. But the majority of people agreed with marijuana prohibition. By 1990, only 16% of Americans thought that the drug should be legal. Yeah, a majority thought that it should be illegal until they started not thinking that it should be illegal. Like, just even by 1995, 25% of people were pro-legalization. Ten years later, another 10%. It's 36% of people in 2005. And then till finally 2013, a majority, a very slim majority, but a majority of Americans support legalization. So, like, why do we think this is? I've got three big reasons that everyone likes to cite. Reason one is just familiarity. All of those counterculture people who smoked pot in the 60s and 70s, they didn't all die. They're still around. Yeah. The and count- doing fine. And doing fine, more or less. More or less. <laughs> we'll talk about the baby boomers <laughs> later. Uh, you know, and the counterculture in the form of things like rap music and rock and roll and all of that, pot never became uncool. It was still, you know, it had cultural cachet. Smoke weed every day. Um, And then more seriously, the so-called war on drugs, including the prohibition on pot, ravaged poor communities and put a lot of minorities in jail. This didn't actually reduce drug use or make drugs more expensive, but it did create a block of leaders focused on legalization, social justice leaders, faith leaders, criminal justice reform advocates, even, you know, lawmakers from these districts all got behind the effort. Yeah. And then you have the pressure of we have more chronic diseases now. They have the AIDS epidemic beginning in the late 80s. You have the increase in cancer with those baby boomers getting older. And you have more painful treatments that need better pain relief. And physicians started turning to marijuana because it worked. Like, what are you going to tell a cancer patient? We're going to put you in jail because you're smoking weed. And that's exactly what happened in 1996 when California voters passed a state referendum legalizing medical marijuana. Still technically illegal federally, but the federal government, the FBI, did not want to be arresting cancer patients. And so they turned the other way. And that has allowed more and more states to adopt these medical marijuana laws. Right. So in 2012, that was when Colorado and Washington, they totally legalized marijuana. And 
Right. They took the big step of regulating marijuana like alcohol. If you're 21 years old, you can buy it at the store. Was there an apocalypse? No apocalypse, actually. Right. Uh, certainly no federal criminal crackdown. <laughs> but five interesting things did happen that we can tell you about. Ah, uh, yes. Let's talk about the five things that happened. Pot got cheap. That's what happens when it's legal. The price in Washington dropped from $25 a gram to less than $10 today. Pot got strong. In both Colorado and Washington, the average strain was found to have significantly greater density of the two key compounds in pot, THC and CBD, which speaks to the innovative abilities of the private sector, but also the challenge of making sure people know what they're getting when they get high. People got stoned. Monthly use went up from a just above 10% of the population in both states in the first year after legalization to 13% in Colorado and 15% in Washington. States got green. Colorado is expected to net $140 million of marijuana taxes in 2016, and Washington could earn as much as $270 million. And there was one, maybe the worst, reported consequence. As you might expect, both states found an increase in drivers under the influence of marijuana, according to a study done by AAA, of people involved in DUIs or, even more unfortunately, fatal accidents. In many of the cases, the people were also under the influence of alcohol or other drugs besides marijuana, but it does seem like drug driving and getting people not to drive while smoking marijuana is a big educational challenge for these states. Yeah. So now other states are looking at Washington and Colorado four years into their marijuana legalization experiment and saying, regulate marijuana like it's alcohol. We can do this. And it's taken the form of more referendums. Yep. Maine, Nevada and California. So if California's referendum passes in the fall, there's going to be a big new market for marijuana. We should recognize that California's medical marijuana market is so lax that pretty much anyone can get a prescription card and get marijuana from a dispensary. As every friend of mine in L.A. can attest. <laughs> but hypothetically, in California in the future, anyone who's 21 will be able to walk into a dispensary and buy legal marijuana. That's going to be a big new market. The question is, what is that going to look like? And like, how is this actually going to be different from, you know, say, Washington, Colorado? Well, for one thing, California is an economy the size of France. So it is a big jurisdiction to be opening this market up in. It's already the nation's largest legal marijuana market. Some people are even comparing this to the gold rush, which I think rightfully so. So let's make, like, the gold rush and head west to... On the verge of tremendous growth is the city of Adelanto. Located in the western portion of the high desert, Adelanto is comfortably removed from the urban sprawl of Los Angeles, yet close enough to take advantage of urban amenities and resources. Adelanto the desert city of Adelanto, California. It is one site of the marijuana gold rush. Quartz reporter Corinne Pertil has reported on that city for Quartz. Adelanto is a town of 30-odd thousand people. It used to be supported by a big Air Force base. That closed down in the 90s. Then they tried to build an international airport, which is a really interesting place to locate an airport, um, <laughs> especially an international one. Uh, and then they tried to build a wholesale town, whatever that is. But nothing has really stuck. 
And now they're hoping marijuana will turn the struggling city around. Last November, the city decided to allow the commercial cultivation of medical marijuana, which is expected to be very profitable. Already in terms of permitting fees alone, it's about $300,000. If they were to adopt a taxation system similar to the one that Desert Hot Springs has, they'd be looking at an estimated $6 million in additional revenues each year from pot alone. And the entire city's entire operating budget is $13 million, So it's a considerable number. And that's just for the city. There are also entrepreneurs coming in eager to invest, like this guy. I, at age 40, consumed cannabis for the first time in my life. And I became excited about it, and I decided that I wanted to make a transition in my life, maybe a sort of a midlife crisis, and and try something new. And so I decided to shut down my law practice and pursue cannabis full-time. That is Aaron Hertzberg. He's a divorce lawyer turned marijuana entrepreneur. And because the federal government still prohibits producing marijuana, it's tough for an entrepreneur to invest directly in the green stuff. You can't even use a bank account if you're growing marijuana. So what Aaron does is he buys growing land in cities like Adelanto where you can get a license to produce the marijuana legally. So that way, if you're an investor, you're investing in basically a real estate operation. You're not actually investing in marijuana itself. Our company goes out and finds the real estate, um, buys the real estate, and then leases it out to those who want to have uh, an opportunity to be in the business in a licensed manner. And so it's kind of a roundabout investment method. But that's because this is a transition time almost for this industry. Most people expect that if enough states legalize, the federal government will lift its prohibition. And that will open it up to big-time competitive traditional businesses like the Monsantos of weed. And you'd think Aaron, a small-time weed investor, would be worried about this, about big corporate weed you know, coming in and pushing aside the little guy. But why would I worry about that? I think that's wonderful. I mean, do you worry about... You know, Hershey's making chocolate bars because they're a large cho- multinational chocolate company or McDonald's. I do if hamburgers. I'm a craft, you know, if I'm, you know, out in hot, desert hot springs making craft chocolate bars. I would well, be. I think that the law, <laughs> the current laws that were passed, um, fortunately, do maintain uh, an opportunity for for smaller producers to be involved in the marketplace. I don't know if Aaron is right or wrong about that, uh, but what's going to determine whether he's right or wrong in part are the laws uh, that are written in this new era of marijuana regulation. Are they going to advantage small entrepreneurs? Are they going to advantage big ones? And it's going to be in the hands of the state legislators who write them who are not known for being averse to taking contributions from big interests. But for the moment, at least, I mean, for right now, it looks like people at a lot of different levels are, you know, successfully taking advantage of all the opportunities here. You know, in all this talk of uh, opportunity and the possibilities that this new industry would open up, there is a, a a really sad or maybe nasty irony to all of this, to this new industry. And you can see it in Adelanto, the town that we've been talking about. The other big industry that they've been counting on to pull their economy out of trouble is the prison industry. The one thing that has worked for them economically has been the incarceration industry. They have three facilities right now with 
3,000 odd beds in a town of 30,000 odd people. And there's a fourth approved that's going to add another three to 4,000 beds. And what have so many people been imprisoned for? Marijuana use or sale or possession. Not so much in Atlanta specifically, according to Corinne's research, but definitely across the country, people have been imprisoned or now have criminal records over marijuana use or sale. And here's the funny, sad kicker. Those people can't take part in this new marijuana industry. They are legally barred from it because many new laws prohibit people with convictions from getting a license to grow or operate or sell. And this is something we talked to Donna Merch about. There was a period during the war on drugs where possession and sale were treated almost as synonymous. So you have a number of people um, caught with very small amounts of drugs that were prosecuted also for sale. So it's a large population. And given its distribution in the population, I think this matters a lot. You know, one of the big debates about stop and frisk in New York, which is overwhelmingly racialized, directed at blacks and Latinos, are given the nature of policing, making it much more likely that African-Americans and Latinos have uh, criminal convictions for drug possession and sale. So I think that um, there's a racial dimension to the criminalization of marijuana and other drugs. And um, I think it's unfortunate to see populations that have already suffered be shut out of what now is becoming illicit economy. So the U.S. is finally trying to get past marijuana prohibition. Drug policy advocates are pretty excited. Criminal justice advocates are excited. But we obviously still haven't separated the substance from its racially freighted past. Now we get another swing of the bat. Lawmakers get another chance to write laws around this market. Will they empower big marijuana to go after vulnerable populations with aggressive sales tactics? Maybe, but maybe they won't. Yeah. And will they let the people who have suffered under prohibition benefit from its legalization? And that's it. That is all the time we have. Time is a flat circle. We'd love to know. know (laughs) Uh, We would love to know what you think of this podcast. Please email us at mpqz at marketplace.org with your ideas for things that couldn't be done. Or we're on Twitter at ActualityPod. And we would love to thank our unstoppable producer Claire Tennisketter our engineer Jake Gorski who also made our delightful theme music Deidre Depke is Marketplace's New York Bureau Chief and Sitara Nieves is Senior Producer at Marketplace You've been listening to Actuality the Marketplace Quartz Podcast We'll be back soon with more stories from inside of the grow room <laughs> See you then